morning, Cosh Connection. Pastor Mark here, and just wanted to wish you a, uh, just have a happy Memorial Day. Uh, as we celebrate this, I asked before the barbecues come out and the, the shorts go on and the flip-flops, uh, maybe just take a few minutes just to reflect on uh, the price that has been paid by many to ensure the freedoms that we have here today in America, and we're thankful for that. And uh, maybe take that opportunity to pass those stories or that concept on to your family and your children, and so just to recognize those who have paid the ultimate price for us. With that, Pastor Miles has asked, uh, that I would teach for him today. So we're going to teach through the uh, book of Esther. We're going to be in chapter 2. He will be back next week. And as we cover uh, the book of Esther, um, it's a story. It's a, a story format. And it's said that nothing tells the story better than a story. Jesus used parables, stories, to describe uh, spiritual concepts and teach lessons to people, uh, basically at a very simple level. And uh, it wouldn't take much for us to remember the stories that we heard uh, from our childhood. We can recall those because we remember stories and stories resonate with us. And so what's unique about this book is that it is told as a story. And uh, as it's being told as a story, there's no references uh, to God. Uh, there are no references to other scriptures. Uh, it's just a story that stands on its own. But it's a very important story. And it, there's a lot of things that, um, that this story teaches us. But I think one of the big underlying things we have to realize about the book of Esther, one of the things about the great story of Esther is it's a story of the Jewish people. And it's a story of how God is always moving towards fulfilling his covenant, even when the circumstances don't look like it. And God has this covenant with Israel, and he had promised that they would be a nation and that their descendants would be as numerous as the stars. And that covenant gets challenged. He also says that um, if you do this, you honor me and you follow me and you do all the right things that you'll be blessed. But he also says in the covenant that if you do all the wrong things, you chase foreign gods, you're disobedient, that you will be taken into captivity. And so we have God's people in this story uh, on a path of being led back to Israel. They have been out of captivity. They're no longer in captivity in this story, but many have lingered behind, so to speak. And so it is important to know that God has a covenant and a deep love for the nation and the people of Israel. Um, we know it because it's written in scriptures, and one of the things I think that proves it even till this day is uh, the things that God loves, his enemy hates. And there are so many people that hate both the people and the nation of Israel, and we see it in the news every day since uh, the inception of Israel and all throughout scripture. Um, I have a bit of a disclaimer in my sermons and teachings usually don't come with a disclaimer, but I'll say this. Um, I have a soft spot. The, um, the nation of Israel is a place I have visited, and I fell in love with the people, uh, the different people groups of Israel. I fell in love with the place of Israel. Um, I had many once-in-a-lifetime experiences while I was in Israel and just spending time with the Lord, but especially beyond all the sites and the historical things, spending time with the people of Israel. And so um, till this day, I have many friends still in Israel. And so uh, I 
I get the report, so to speak, the, uh, not the one that comes to the news, but the one that comes by email or by a phone call. Um, one of my special experiences is being in a place that many call the West Bank. Um, it is Samaria. Um, your vision of the West Bank is, you know, they call it a settlement. People in the outside world call it a settlement, but it actually looks a lot like Rancho Penasquitas. Uh, and so there are beautiful homes and community centers there and uh, spent some time there. And I know there was a day that my daughter and I, a very special day, my older, oldest daughter and I uh, went up to the hills of Samaria and fulfilled scripture by planting uh, grapes, part of a vineyard up on a mountain in Samaria, um, a very special time, knowing that there's something that we did that is behind, that is fulfilling scripture, that is uh, part of Israel that remains behind and is, I'd love to see that, that grapevine again, I'll just say that. Um, also one of the experiences I had in Israel is visiting a place called Yavez Shem, and uh, it's the Holocaust Museum. And uh, I have to say I was curious about it. I was the first one off the bus and I've never had two hours of my life go by so quickly um, as I was engaged in the stories and of just all the people and the horrible things that had come across uh, the people of Israel and uh, just the, the mistreatment and the genocide, uh, the attempt at just completely wiping out the hatred for the Jewish people and reading their stories and seeing the exhibits and two hours went by like 10 minutes. And I have to admit, I almost missed the bus, except I was the one that was the bus captain, so they, they waited behind for me. But I was deeply moved by the struggle uh, of God's people. I also grew up in a Jewish neighborhood, and so many of my friends from junior high on up were all Jewish families. And um, one of my oldest friends, uh, I remember hearing the story in his living room of uh, when the Nazis had taken his family and um, executed most of his uh, family and only his great-great-grandparents got out. Uh, had it not been from them, his family line would have ended there. And the story of that and how that happened, the deep impression that it left on his family, and it, it, something that's never escaped me. Um, it's always fascinated me that just the amount of hatred it took to, to to do that um, is something that is supernatural. It's something beyond just, just hatred that man can conjure up. Uh, it is something that is authored and sponsored and uh, brought out by our enemy and the enemy of God, the devil. Also, um, one of the things I think most people don't realize about Israel is that it is made up of many people groups. Um, I, I, while I was there, I saw um, Ethiopian Jews from Africa. Uh, I ran into some uh, Mexican brothers and sisters there in uh, the old city in Jerusalem speaking Spanish and we got to talk and uh, they were Jewish living in uh, uh, Israel. And then I have many friends that most of the world I guess would call Palestinians. And uh, I have friends that are uh, in the city, the little town of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. Uh, they run a school there and the school is it's a fantastic school. You get a great education, but it is no, no excuse Christian school. And uh, the local kids go there. Some are Jewish, uh, some are Muslim, uh, Arab, Jew. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a mix of, in that neighborhood of people that go to that school and they all learn about Jesus. 
and they have stories of their experience in Israel. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ. They, they love the Lord and, and are about his business. And so uh, I have many of those friends that still remain there, and we help to support as uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. The history of Israel I do not believe there's ever been a nation like Israel. The history of captivities uh, being taken away, but also even uh, in Israel uh, having a foreign occupation, uh, the attempts at genocide, the wars, uh, and then a nation that has completely gone reforming in 1948. It is a miracle beyond miracles, and I think um, we'd have to really, really uh, take a lot of effort to deny that God's hand is on Israel and his heart is with the people of Israel. And so I know that he has a plan uh, for Israel, that he loves Israel very much, and that he intends to fulfill every bit of his end of the bargain, uh, so to speak, in the covenant. And uh, I don't know how exactly that's gonna happen, but what I do know is that the fulfillment of the covenant will be Jesus. And so uh, please, along with me, as we look at the book of Esther, um, please pray for the peace of Israel. All right, we're going to start here in um, chapter uh, 2 and in uh, verses 1 through 8 and read along with me here. It says, After these things, when the wrath of King Asaharis subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what he had decreed against her. Now, this has been about two years, I believe. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of the kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young uh, woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. In Shushan, the citadel, uh, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconi, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his, as his own daughter. So it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Wow. This is a crazy story. He, the chapter before, and I think Jason, Pastor Jason did such a great job of breaking down and setting up the book of Esther. And there's still some setup we're going to do here. But he did such a great job of breaking down and setting up the book of Esther as to what it is and what it isn't. And so as we go through this, we want to stick to the, keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is, is this is the story 
of God, however unlikely the method and the circumstances, how he is working behind the scenes to continue to bring about this covenant relationship with his people. We have different characters. And uh, as God is going to use these characters who are imperfect people in imperfect circumstances to do his perfect will. And if you're going to make a note on this, you can make the note that God calls imperfect people in imperfect circumstances to do his perfect will. We have uh, King Asaharis, ruler over 127 provinces, 22 modern countries. Uh, that would include um, Iran, well, basically from India all the way to Ethiopia. And arguably, he is the richest, most powerful man on the planet at this time. There is nothing that he has denied. He has complete and absolute power. And uh, it appears he's at the height of all this. And there's this crazy story where he has dismissed his former queen Vashti uh, because she would not come out and we don't know exactly do what, but appear to go model her crown and be seen by uh, all these other people at this big party, wouldn't show off her beauty. She refused. And so uh, with that, a decree come, came into the land and uh, Vashti was taken away as queen. She was no longer queen anymore. Uh, and so they were looking for somebody new to fulfill that position. And so it, it while it makes no sense in our culture, in our economy, in our way of thinking, they are going to find a new queen by a very unlikely process. And I liken it to uh, between the mix between The Bachelor, I don't know if you've seen that show, uh, Miss Universe pageant, and The Great Virgin Roundup. We don't know which one of these things is exactly. I think we need the reality of, um, well, think of it like this. One of the richest men in the world is Elon Musk, and he is the Tesla guy, the SpaceX guy, and he's a character. He's quite the character and uh, known all over the world. People follow him. In fact, if you've ever seen the, the movie Iron Man, um, the character that Robert Downey plays in Iron Man, uh, this eccentric rich inventor who is Iron Man uh, to study the character and kind of get the character. They had Robert Downey actually follow Elon Musk around to see how one of the richest men in the world, single men in the world at the time, uh, acts and what he does. And so um, that kind of gives you an idea for what could happen here. And so imagine you have this Elon Musk character um, with a net worth that says of $152 billion. That's a lot of money. He is a very eligible bachelor. Now, King Asaharis isn't even a bachelor. He's got hundreds of wives already. But there's nothing holding him back from whatever he wants to do. But all that being said, imagine for a second that I am worth, me, Mark, am worth $152 billion. I suddenly become a very attractive, intelligent, desirable man. And there's about 152 billion reasons why. Are you starting to catch on here? And so part of this, we don't know exactly how this all happened. 
We don't know if these women were forced into the situation, if some voluntarily wanted to be part of it, like a beauty pageant, or it was like all the way to the other end, like The Bachelor. But we do know this, that all these women were rounded up. So we have this character uh, in there. Uh, we have Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jew. Um, he appears to be an honorable man, a man of influence perhaps. Uh, he is in his fourth generation, it appears, of captivity. So he's a fourth generation in, Persian, in Persia, but he's Jewish. And it also seems to, uh, from the, the um, uh, content here, it also appears that he's not very public about his faith. That's what it appears. Now we have Esther, and her born name is Hadassah, which means myrtle in Hebrew and uh, named after a plant. And the myrtle plant, the connotation with the uh, myrtle plant is why you would name somebody after that. It uh, means hope. And I think, boy, that, if there was ever a prophetic name, uh, certainly the hope of Israel is going to rest in Esther here as we come into the coming chapters. But um, her name is uh, just kind of like, um, let's see if I would describe that. Uh, kind of like if you saw an olive branch. Well, that is a symbol that would represent peace. And so Myrtle represented to the Jewish people uh, hope. And so her name is changed, though. And we believe her name is changed to Esther. We believe that is translated, literally, it's Hadassah, or it's the Myrtle. Uh, but it is the Persian spelling, pronunciation, name that was given her, perhaps to cover up her Jewish identity and her Jewish roots. Now, I say that because the time frame they're in. Israel was being restored uh, physically, spiritually, um, and through the works of Nehemiah and Ezra, uh, King Artaxerxes had helped. Um, it was, it was being restored and people were living there. And that was the idea is that all the Jewish people would go back to the land of Israel, repopulate, rebuild, and kind of make Israel uh, great again, if you will. And so they were, they were going to do that. But there were some that lagged behind. Uh, some that while they were not required to be in these foreign lands, they had the freedom to go back drug their feet. And we can only imagine without trying to add anything to the text is that their lives there where they were were something that they were either used to, they were comfortable with, or they were profitable. Um, but one of the things we know is in the history uh, of God's people is that they don't go along very uh, long before somebody comes and tries to displace them hurt them, commit genocide against them. And so they're in that time period, and God is using this as a way to deliver his people. But in, sense, in a sense, Mordecai and Esther both are undercover Jews. Their faith is not on the outside. Um, Esther is actually asked to keep her Jewishness a secret, even before the king. But one of the things we know that, that uh, from the text is it doesn't appear 
that anybody else knows either. Nobody ever ratted her out. None of her neighbors never uh, said anything about it. It doesn't appear anybody knew they were really Jewish. So there, there was nothing on the outside. So evidently they had assimilated into the culture so much that their identity as Jews um, was basically undetectable. Now we see in um, chapter 2, as we go into verses 9 through 16, those are the characters. And now we're going to look and we're going to see how God equips all of us, but these two here, to do his good work. God is going to use these two imperfect people, and he's actually going to use the king also uh, to accomplish this perfect task, this perfect work. So in verse 9 we see, so she'd been taken to the king's palace. In verse 9 it says, Now the woman, the, excuse me, the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor. So he readily gave, this is the head eunuch, beauty preparations to her, besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Each woman's turn came to go to King Asaharis after she had completed 12 months' beauty preparation according to the regulations for the women, for thus were the days of their preparation apportioned six months with oil or myrrh, and six months with perfumes and preparation for beautiful women. As a side note, um, this was also used to make sure that none of the young virgins were pregnant, and so uh, the king would not have any uh, children that weren't his. It says in verse 13, thus prepared each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her into the women's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abahel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's unit, the custodian of the women, advised, and Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to the king uh, Asaharis into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now, um, remember that I mentioned that perhaps Mordecai and Esther living as undercover Jews were um, living maybe a, possibly a little bit of a compromised life and four generations into living into Persia, I, that's probably understandable. She is getting ready to be the queen to be married to a Gentile, strictly forbidden by Torah. And so she's going to head and she's going to go, she is going to, I don't believe she has a choice in this, maybe she does, but she is going to be part of this. 
And so, again, God using imperfect people, maybe even making imperfect choices to accomplish a perfect task or his perfect will. Now, whatever we do, God fully equips us for his good work. Um, she was good looking. She had to be really, really something special. But the scripture also uh, tells us that she had favor with people. How did she gain this favor? I mean, you ever meet somebody so good looking you, you, you kind of hate them or you're jealous of them? It opens doors for them and their lives seem easier, at least from the outside. And uh, they have advantages over people because they were born good looking. And sometimes they're the people that we, we are envious of or we just we love to hate, so to speak. And so um, there has to be more than looks. There, she has to have something going on besides that. Uh, I had a friend, he's at the time was about 25 years old, and uh, he would take odd jobs. And he called me very excited. We wouldn't be fishing for the next two weeks because uh, the odd job that he had gotten was that he was going to drive a small bus van uh, around to all the beaches in San Diego. And he was hired by a modeling agency and he was going to bring some American and foreign swimsuit models uh, to the beaches for the photo shoot. And his responsibility was going to be to drive them there, uh, help with some of the camera equipment, uh, kind of help with odds and ends in, in getting things. And I remember said, man, you got to be looking forward to that. And he was um, more than a little bit excited about driving the models around uh, uh, San Diego. He was a single guy, so uh, perhaps God was going to work mightily with him. We don't know. And I talked to him about a week and a half into this, and I asked him, like, how is the, you know, how was the modeling thing going? You know, did you meet Mrs. Wright? And he said, this is one of the most horrible experiences of my life. He said, the models are nothing like a still picture in a magazine. He goes, first of all, they don't eat. He goes, so they're always angry and mad. In fact, I'm not even allowed to eat because if they smell my sandwich, they get mad at me. And so to quench this fact that they can't eat he goes they get really really cranky and then they smoke a lot of cigarettes he goes that's how they stay so pencil thin and I'm like well that that's kind of a bummer and he goes on top of that they were the worst human beings on the entire planet they wanted everything done for them they they felt they were so privileged he goes they were so discouraged he goes they don't even treat me like I'm a human being by the time the two weeks is over, I asked him how he did, and he told me, he says, I'm getting ready to drive this bus off the pier with all of them in it. He said it was one of the worst experiences of his life, and he would never look at a model the same in a magazine. I say that as many times the gifts that God gives us, perhaps we're really good looking, we don't use that to God's advantage. In fact, sometimes it turns us into people um, that aren't very great to be around. And evidently, Esther was not that person. There had to be something there more than outward beauty. 
And this was not the first time uh, that God had called someone to save Israel. And I think it's an interesting um, thread if you follow it. If we take Joseph, part of the requirement for having Joseph's job was that he was good looking. It said that he was good looking. Now, his gifts and his talents were that he was an administrator, that he could interpret dreams, uh, that he was pleasant to be around, that he was trusted, that he could give answers, that he had wisdom that nobody else had. So he had more than just good looks, but the good looks opened the door for him. Uh, Daniel. Daniel, the requirement by King Nebuchadnezzar uh, for the young men from Israel that were to be brought before him to be in his service in the kingdom was that they had to be pleasant to look at. They had to be good looking. Um, and then, but they had to have gifts and talents. So we know that Daniel uh, was a man who can interpret dreams, uh, that had a tremendous amount of wisdom, that had solid leadership skills. So he had the whole package, so to speak, of gifts and talents to be able to be of assistance to this foreign king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were many times in scripture, uh, if you'll read commentaries, uh, they're referred to as the three MBAs. They were all gifted in business administration and carrying out tax. They were also to be good looking. And so there was more to that. And that's what God is going to use. But evidently their good looks got them through the door. So Esther wins favor with all the staff. They seem to go out of their way to give her the inside track on what the boss likes. And she was obedient and took the advice of the head eunuch as to what to take with her. We don't know what she was taking with her. But whatever it was, and however she acted, and whatever she did was specific to the king. I believe uh, not only God, uh, by his spirit, communicated with her, but I believe she was, seems like an obedient person. She was listening for the good advice from the staff. How would I liken that to, and, and think about this. Now, and, this, and again, this is my opinion. This isn't scripture, but this appears to be what happened. And we take that to a very practical level. Um, my boss is Miles, and if we were searching, he has a wife, by the way, great wife, but if we were searching for a wife for Miles, and I found somebody, you know, in our selection process of wives for Miles, and I found somebody that was a godly woman that, man, we'd love to see her as the lead pastor's wife. She'd be great to have around. We really liked her. We would give her inside information. I would, I know, I've worked with Miles eight years, I know what a lot of his likes and dislikes are. I know what articles I would forward to him. Uh, I know what his favorite candy is. He likes Reese's Christmas trees. That's his favorite candy. I would have her come through the door with some Reese's uh, Christmas trees, um, probably a steak, and she would pull up in a Tesla because that's his favorite car. She'd probably have an iPad in one hand and an, and an iMac in the other. Uh, she'd be a person that loved and understood Apple products. And so if I know that much about my boss, I'm sure these guys know so much more about theirs. And so I believe that um, her kindness, I believe uh, that she had a humbleness about her. I believe there was something about her that when the King's staff saw her, they wanted her to be their queen. Now, as a side note, she's also a local girl. She is from 
the area of the citadel. And so perhaps somebody knew her, knew her reputation, but it appeared that the staff was on her side and they were bending the rules uh, to make sure that she was assured a spot. In 1 Peter, a very important point is made. 1 Peter 3.3, it says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart and the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. I know one thing. Inner beauty is valued by God. The book of Proverbs, which... Um, King Solomon, uh, I believe uh, this is written to him, and I believe the author of this, uh, many Bible commentators will tell you that it is none other than Bathsheba, uh, a woman who in her analysis failed her husband and was not a good wife. And these are the qualities in what Bathsheba thinks that Solomon should be looking for in a wife. And I want you to listen to these qualities real quick in Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31. And notice that nothing about looks is mentioned. It says, Who can find a virtuous wife, for her worth is far above rubies? The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so she's trustworthy. So he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. I don't think we could say that for Bathsheba. Um, she seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands, so she's industrious. Uh, she is like the merchant ships. She brings food from afar. I love food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. So she takes care of their employees. She considers a field and buys it, and her profits, excuse me, from her profits she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. So she's got like a real estate side deal going on. Uh, she girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. Uh, maybe she's a crossfitter. I don't know. Um, she perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. So she puts, puts in the hours. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hand holds the spindle. So she's working with um, sewing and things like that to help clothe her family. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches her, out her hands to the needy. Um, she has compassion and a heart for those who are less fortunate. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for her household is clothed with scarlet. She really likes red, and she makes them jackets. All that being said, she's industrious, she's loving, she's kind, she's trustworthy. All these things that are recommended uh, for a wife, and not one of these mention outward beauty. As we get into chapter 17, we see that God has equipped now Esther for this task. Um, uh, Mordecai is kind of off to the side. He's kind of the third baseman, so to speak. He's coaching her and all these things. We've got the entire staff pulling for Esther, uh, that she's going to be the queen. And we start to see what God's supernatural plan is. God's supernatural plan, and you can make a note of this, God's supernatural plan is our choice to obey. We can be part of that plan, or we can simply walk away. We can choose to be part of the story, or step into the story, so to speak, 
or we can choose to be outside of it and want somebody else to be chosen for God's word. Join me in verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. Now think about this of the hundreds and hundreds of virgins that um, are already in the king's palace and the many hundreds that try out later, she is favored. Verse 19, when virgins were gathered together a second time, so the king's not done, and uh, this is not, not the end of the story by any chance. Um, he's still out looking for more wise, but not a new queen. Mordecai sat within the king's gate now Esther had not yet revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had charged her for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him so even though she's an adult she's still listening to her elders her uncle in those days while Mordecai sat within the king's gate two of the king's eunuchs Bigthan and Teresh doorkeepers became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Uh, so the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Something supernatural just happened. If you're going to try to assassinate a king, you probably don't want to talk about that in front of people. That would be kind of uh, assassin 101, let's say. But I believe it was a supernatural event that led to Mordecai being able to overhear this plot. And when God does something supernatural, it requires a response. Uh, when Moses encountered a burning bush, it was supernatural. It was not consumed. He heard God's voice. It required for him to respond. He could either walk away or he could go engage God in the mission. Um, when Moses is standing at the edge of the Red Sea and his people are in trouble, dire trouble, and he's praying to the Lord, and the Lord opens the Red Sea up, they had a choice. And they chose to, when they confronted with the supernatural, it required a response. And their response was to follow Moses and to go across. When Jesus healed the blind and the sick and the lame, that required a response by the people around them. Some people were in awe and readily gave their lives to the Lord and recognized him as the Messiah. But some continued to dig in and back a bad position and accuse him of it being a demonic act. And even at the crucifixion and then the miraculous resurrection of Jesus, that requires a response. And some chose to mock and to scoff and to doubt and to try to cover up. Yet some followed God in that. So 
Anytime there's a supernatural event and we are confronted with it, it requires a response. And I have to say that sometimes we think too big in these supernatural uh, events. Sometimes the supernatural event is just engaging somebody who needs help and a door is going to open for you to teach them about God and His grace and His mercy and His love for them. And so those supernatural events uh, require us to do something. We see Mordecai has a choice. He overhears, I, I just by chance, uh, not chance, but he overhears this plot to kill the king. And he has a choice here. It's anonymous. Nobody knows if he's overheard this conversation. He could walk away from this. He could say, I didn't vote for that guy. I never liked him. Let him knock him off. He could say, um, my life will be better if that guy is gone. Um, he could simply walk away and do nothing and nobody would know but him and God. But when we're confronted with a supernatural situation, it requires a response. And Mordecai knew what the response is. And the response lies in the most basic of God's laws, the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. And if he has a chance to prevent a murder, and if he has a chance to be a subject or obedient to the authorities above him and not break God's laws, the choice is clear. The risk that he has to take is clear. And so he goes and he informs Esther. Esther, who is already queen now of the most powerful nation on the planet, uh, in essence, the richest woman in the world, perhaps, um, she's already queen and in favor. She has a choice that she needs to make. Is she going to pass that information on from Mordecai and tell the king, uh, or is she going to let it pass? And she does the right thing. She has to risk being the next Vashti, basically dethroned for almost no reason, or is she going to take the risk to try to save the king's life? So she honors and obeys first Mordecai, and she honors and she obeys God with the supernatural uh, information. God wants a obedient response to his supernatural plan, both from the children of Israel and both from you and I. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet in Jeremiah 7.21 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them. Obey my voice and I will be your God and you will be my people and walk in all the ways that I've commanded you that it may be well with you. Mordecai's obedient response to the situations ends up being possibly the most pivotal, the single most important part of the entire story. And we'll see that in later chapters. This decision to honor God and to be obedient ends up being ultimately the choice that is going to direct the path to save Israel. 
Esther's response not only earns the king's faith in her, but also a trust and his respect. She goes from somebody who is treated more as an object to starting to make that transition to somebody who is a friend and a supporter. As we wind up, and it's a memorial weekend, we have to recognize that other people at times make sacrifices, heroic sacrifices, um, for the good of their community, uh, their family, uh, their tribe, whatever you want to call it. Um, sometimes history, it says, makes the man, and sometimes uh, the man makes history. Uh, one such man in my studies that I um, hadn't really read a lot about was a man named Jonathan Nehenyahu. And Jonathan was actually born in the United States. Uh, he was from a very uh, gifted, intelligent uh, family. Uh, you may have heard of his brother, Benjamin Nehenyahu, who's been the Prime Minister of Israel for 15 years. But Jonathan has a special story. Um, he was good looking. Uh, he was gifted. Uh, he excelled in all he did. Uh, to read his writings, uh, his view of young people when he lived in America is that they simply didn't have anything that they were accomplishing as quickly or as grand as he was used to. Um, after high school, uh, he was uh, selected and he attended uh, Harvard University. Uh, he was on the dean's list, a good student, gifted again and talented. Yet while all this is going on and everything is going his way for him uh, in the uh, 60s and late 60s, early 70s, he had a heart like God's heart, that loved Israel, loved the land of Israel and the people of Israel. And he was pulled from a life of prosperity and um, I'm sure a lot of, a lot of uh, wealth and, and notoriety, uh, starting with his Harvard education, he was pulled for that and he went back into military service because he felt that it was the young men of Israel, the 22 and 23-year-olds, that were going to help to uh, take care of the nation and to uh, go to war and to fight for the principles and the land and the people of Israel. And he felt that that was his duty. Uh, again, gifted and talented. He went back and he was in the Six Day War. He was decorated as a hero uh, for saving lives. He was considered a brilliant military man. Uh, he was considered a literary uh, genius. He was evidently quite the quite the writer. Uh, his writings are now published in, in Israel. But as he, his affinity for Israel became even stronger in the fighting for Israel, once again, when the fighting had settled down and he had been wounded, uh, he was able to go back to Harvard. And while he was at Harvard, uh, he was going about his studies, doing well, and war broke out again in Israel. And his quote to his father is, my nation and my people need me. Harvard is a luxury that I cannot afford. And so he returned to Israel to fight, to be a commando, uh, to come to the aid of his people, an accomplished, uh, before even 30 years old, an accomplished uh, 
commando and, and war veteran. In 1976, uh, there was a plane that was hijacked uh, by a PLO terrorist. And it was taken to an African nation, Uganda, and it was held in a place called Entebbe. And the terrorists uh, separated all the passengers and everybody who was from uh, Israel and who was of Jewish descent were separated into one category and everybody else on the plane was separated and they were sent somewhere else. And so uh, there were hostages and uh, they were there to meet some of the terrorist demands. And uh, as we've learned, you can't bargain with terrorists. And so there was a raid that was planned uh, to go into Entebbe and to free uh, the hostages. And I believe there was uh, approximately 106 hostages left. On uh, 4th of July, um, 1976, so you and I were celebrating the uh, 200th year of our country's freedom, uh, our bicentennial. On that day, John Jonathan Nehenyahu and uh, his squad of commandos went into Entebbe to liberate uh, the hostages. And in the gun battles and the fighting that ensued, one commando was killed, and his name was Jonathan. At 30 years old, a brilliant and a precious life, gone. Most of the hostages recur, I believe four of the hostages were killed during this. One soldier, Jonathan, and the entire nation of Israel grieved. Simone, uh, Shimon Perez said that it was, the heart had been ripped out of one of its best and its brightest. You see, when we live life in connection with God, it becomes very apparent that sooner or later, our lives are bigger than what we own, that there are tasks and there are missions and there are supernatural things to engage. And as um, we walk through this life, living life in connection, the second stage of that is as part of our life in connection with God means that we're involved and we pour into and we live life in connection with one another. And sometimes that means sacrifice. And we do that in the light of knowing this, that God is always in the business of fulfilling his promises and his covenants, both to the people of Israel and to you and I. Are you part of that plan? God bless you. Lord, thank you so much that we learned so much uh, from the history and the rich history of Israel, Lord, and your love for them and how you are steadfast and steady, even when you are denied, when you are, even when you are mistreated, even when, Lord, we worship other things, other gods. You're still there, Lord. We thank you for your steadfastness. We thank you for your mercy, and we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray.